production. Jamie Wheel is the Executive Director of the Flow Genome Project and leading expert in the neurophysiology of human performance. He is one of our wisest voices, speaking on the intersection of science and human potential. Jamie is driven by compassion and offers simple strategies to regain our fullest capacities for the planet we inhabit. He finds meaning in the world today amidst the chaos, disease and uncertainty a lot of us are struggling with. This conversation is an exploration about many things, grappling with the meaning crisis, regaining a unified state with our neighbours and leaning into the simple joys of a society we seem to have lost. Drop into our bodies, drop into our lives, into our neighbourhoods, into our communities, into nature, (laughs) into relationship. Like, let's go back to like being analogue humans a little bit more and actually connect with each other. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Jamie Will is the author of many books, including the Pulitzer Prize-nominated Stealing Fire, and his newest book, Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God, Sex and Death in a World That's Lost Its Mind. At its essence, this conversation is about regaining control of the stories we're telling because they are shaping the future we're creating, remembering our deepest inspiration, healing our pain and apathy and connecting to each other like never before. Jamie Will is funny and has an extraordinary mind. May this episode bring healing, believing and belonging to all those disenchanted with our world and most importantly answer once and for all the questions of why we are here and what do we do now. Jamie Wheel, you are one of the deepest thinkers on this planet today, a leading expert in neurophysiology. But what got you into this line of work? Well, I mean, I think it was it was always just trying to follow the thread of an interesting life that, you know, I felt like getting up in the morning for. And I was always kind of equally torn between academics and study and sort of learning how the world works and then going out and adventuring. So specifically in big mountains and oceans and and then trying to connect those two, um, you know, and sort of weave a life of both experience and understanding um, kind of just became the thread I kept following. And, and really that's sort of what, it, what has led me to founding the Flow Genome Project, which was sort of a distillation of all of our mountain guiding and our organizational leadership developments and trainings and everything else just into the most fun um, package possible. And then writing books like Stealing Fire and this recent Recapture the Rapture, which is just trying to sort of tell the story that I was piecing together along all those years, which is where do we come from and why do we do the strange things we do and where are we going next? Obviously, what you talk about a lot in Recapture the Rapture is is very philosophical, but also very deep. What led you growing up to question things, question the narrative and not just take things on face value? Mm. Well, I think I was sort of um, 
out of place, out of time, and out of mind. You know, so I was sharing with you earlier, um, my mother was native South African. My father's family moved from England to South Africa after World War II. So they, they were kind of these expats. And then he was a Royal Naval officer and we came to the United States. So I was never, you know, just spanned three continents. And then out of time, which was kind of connected to that, which was, you know, my mother's background was crazy old school colonial Africa, you know? So mm. like there were, like when I came to America, I didn't feel any affinity with my breakfast club, 16 candles, 1980s to 90s. American friends. I, I looked back to like the 1950s and the 60s of like Americans like shaking off the Eisenhower generation and going and, you know, becoming beats and hippies. I was like, oh, that's that's where I am. I'm like 30 years in the past. And then even randomly, um, I went to a went to university at this little place that was the 17th century landing spot. It was like Williamsburg, Virginia, but for Maryland. So it was all brick and colonial and they had, you know, Native American longhouses and Smiths and all that. So literally you could be out of time. And then the last bit was sort of just out of mind, which was just mind expanding drugs in a consequence free environment. So, you know, that kind of between those three things, I found myself for my whole life being a sort of stranger in a strange land or a sort of participant observer in the rituals and customs of people. I mean, even being raised Church of England and then getting chucked into American Catholic schools. Mm. And I'm like, what are these bizarre customs? You know, what are these stations of the cross and communion and the smells and bells? Like, so everything in my life was, I was just this sort of weird bystander roaming around, trying to wrap my head around. What do these crazy humans do? <laughs> You talk a lot about religion in your book. How has that affected your life? Yeah, I mean, I think as much of it, I mean, my, my academic background was sort of in neuroanthropology. So mm. that's the, it was sort of the combination of looking at history and human customs and culture and then understanding, well, what's under the hood of that? What is happening at the level of the body and the brain that would give rise to that habit, that custom, that experience across generations? And, you know, and religion is obviously one of those, right? In fact, one mm. of the main ways that, um, you know, paleontologists and archaeologists and everybody else looking at, you know, early hominids, they try and figure out, well, when did they become sentient? When did they have culture? It's often burial style. You know, mm. did you just die and that was it? And you're now dead meat and we move on? Or are you carefully arranged and facing the East or whatever it would be? So the human relationship to belief and belonging and becoming, um, feel ancient and timeless. And while um, folks like Sam Harris and, and Christopher Hitchens, you know, the kind of the new atheists have often really taken the piss out of organized religion. Mm. Um, I think that's a sort of, you know, for all of its opiate of the masses, you know, it's a method, you know, a mechanism of bureaucratic control and keeps the people down and feeds them with superstitions, you know, and, and, and sort of um, magical thinking. You can absolutely make that critique. But at the same time, there is something profound from a kind of cultural immune system that comes with belief and belonging. And even Nietzsche said it, right? He, he's, you know, everybody quotes this first part uh, from Thus Spake Zarathustra. They say, you know, that Nietzsche said, God is dead. Mm. And, they, and he did. <laughs> but the rest of the paragraph says, and be super careful, friends and neighbors, when you kill your gods. 
because, because you kill Christ, right? And you actually take out of the entire fabric of Christianity, the morality, the ethics, the social cohesion, the commitment to service, all these other things. And those are super important. And there's been some fascinating research that has shown, you know, cross-culturally around the world that people who believe in a, you know, a, a religion of their, a religion of their place and space are healthier, happier, and wealthier than people who don't. And because this is cross-cultural, mm. it's not the doctrines or the dogmas. It's not whose God's at the top. It's just the act of believing and belonging that appears to have really pro-social qualities and components. So even if it's just from that level, you know, almost sort of public health, you know, you're kind of yes. like, hey, it really is important for us to have places to be inspired. And whether that's the cathedrals of Notre Dame or whether that's, a, you know, an Aboriginal Dreamtime didgeridoo, you know, session, yes. right? Ways for us to connect, ways for us to mend and heal, and ways for us to be in community with each other. And that those to me feel like the kind of three essential nutrients, um, healing, inspiration, and connection um, that organized religion always did do. And now as we're getting into increasingly disorganized religion, you know, here's, we kind of, it's important that we get the blueprints of how we build transitional structures into what's next. Absolutely. You say that we're in the midst of a meaning crisis. Firstly, how do we restore that? And what is a meaning crisis? Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's kind of like anywhere we look, right? Uh, it feels like we, uh, we have lost our familiar and comforting handrails. Yeah. And on the one hand, there's an element of that's okay. It's time for us to kind of grow up and think for ourselves. God forbid, do our own research, right? Things like that. Um, or um, we could say, hey, this is massively disorienting. Because again, you know, if, we've, if meaning 1.0, kind of the way humans have always allowed ourselves to be directed as to why am I here? What matters? What's important? What should I pay attention to? And how ought I live? Meaning 1.0 was organized religion. And as we've seen around the world in the last several decades, just steady, steady trends, but in the last several decades, uh, increasingly, now more people don't identify with belonging to any given faith than do. Now, that's the first time in human history that's been true. So we might take that for granted. I'm spiritual, but not religious. I borrow from Buddhism and Catholicism and Judaism and this and that, you know, and I kind of make it, I, I'm my own inner guru. Like we, we, we're so used to that. But that's actually crazy new. Yeah. It has never been the case before. If you think about heretics, apostates, you know, like you've been banished from your village or your town, you know, you're a non-believer, an infidel. Like it, life was not good for the none of the above mm. ever, right? And now we've got more of them than, than, than believers. And at the same time, meaning 2.0, right? What we could say was sort of the, the religion of the enlightenment the French and British Enlightenment, the European Enlightenment, right? The idea that, hey, this is, let's sweep away superstition. We've got science, we've got five senses. This is Descartes and Rousseau and that whole gang and Locke and all those guys. And they're like, look, let's get reasonable. Let's get rational. Let's measure things. Let's test things. Civil rights and civil liberties, all these kinds of things. And for a while, 
right? Most of the 20th century, I mean, you know, the world wars definitely took some, you know, took some major shots where like, whoops, you know, communism, socialism, fascism, all the isms are a little sketchy and best laid plans are mice and men. Let's not forget the French revolution. Like you can have really good ideas and it can still end badly in a ditch. So, right. There was this kind of like modeling of like, what does this idea of science and evidence, right? The scientific method Mm. plus Mm. civil rights, democracy, markets, all that stuff, right? Seemed like a pretty good deal. And then sure enough, the Soviet Union collapsed and everyone's like, yay, USA, USA, right? Like they won. And, you know, Francis Fukuyama, he wrote the book called The End of History and the Last Man. He was literally, literally 1989. He's like, that's it. We're done. We're here. We have arrived at the pinnacle of human civic organization. There's nothing, there's nowhere to go from here. And of course, that didn't last very long. You know, 2001, boom, and suddenly everything gets complicated again. And then throw, you know, fast forward to 2008, fast forward to this last year and a half with COVID, the complete train wrecks with the WHO, with the CDC, with, you know, what's safe, what's not, who's telling us, who's trustworthy, Mm -hmm. presidents, prime ministers, it's all over the place. And we now have a collapse in meaning 2.0 as well. So that sense of like, I don't know if I can trust or believe the Lancet, a peer-reviewed premier medical journal, because they rushed to publish stuff. I don't know if I can believe, you know, the Sunday Telegraph or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, because now they feel like they've got dogs in the fight and they're kind of putting their thumbs on scales and who's really telling us the truth and what can we actually know for certain? That's really collapsed. Yeah. And so between those two, if you think of them as sort of pillars on either side, the ceiling has caved in. And that lack of who can we look to that are trustworthy leaders, sources of knowledge or authority that we can use to help us make sense of the crazy, Mm. um, that's kind of gone up in smoke. And it's left a lot of people anxious, despair, frustrated, prone to getting sucked into cultic tendencies, conspiracies, you name it, trying to fill that hole. I think that's really interesting what you say because I have thought the same thing. I mean, working in the media and seeing the PR wagon go around and obviously people have, they are talking about certain things, they have their agendas. And then I have a lot of friends who are into a lot of the conspiracy theories as well, so they tell me their information and you're kind of stuck in the middle of going, I I don't really know what is right and what isn't. And I mean, who knows? How do you find your truth within that, Jamie? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, and, and, I, and I map this out in the book, you know, for increasingly like crazy, you know, post-conventional experiences, like whether that's high-end meditation experiences, non-ordinary state experiences, psychedelic experiences, that kind of thing. But somebody asked me, a year or two ago, like, well, exactly this question. How the hell do you make sense of things? And and I just kind of, I hadn't thought of it before, but I was like, oh, basically, um, Pascal's wager, uh, Occam's razor, and Bayesian probability. And it's kind of like a three-legged stool or a triangle. So Pascal's wager, he, he was a French mathematician. He basically said, he's like, look, the way I could, it's better for me to believe in God just in case he's real. Than it is to say, I don't believe in God and get to heaven and then be banished to, you know, to the eternal flames. Like that would be a shitty move. So I'm just going to hedge my bets and I'm going to think of the, you know, conceive of the inconceivable just in case. So that's gate number one. Like, is it possible that the virus was engineered in a, in a Wuhan lab? Well, maybe, 
Because if it does turn out to be true, it's worth considering it. Mm. Is it possible that that Pentagon report um, is actually going to disclose alien contact and crazy new physics and engines? Well, maybe if it turned out to be true, it would be super in, in, impactful. Is it possible we've overcooked the planet and we've got less than a decade before, before the wheels come off? Maybe. I'm going to keep my eye on that. Right. So that's just that's Pascal's wager. So let me conceive of the inconceivable just in case it turns out to be true. But then you got to run it through the filter of Occam's razor. Right. And that's William of Occam, right? The, the, the monk who said, but you know, you get boiled down to simply basically the simplest solution is usually the best. So now that's a pretty that that razor cuts through a lot of the excessively woolly conspiracy theories. Right, where you're like, and this has to happen, and then that happened. If you go back and read that footnote, or you change that and you turn it sideways and squint, it kind of looks like that. And you know, grassy knolls. <laughs> so you're like, true. Yeah, maybe. Right, maybe, or you just maybe might have just fucking got lost on YouTube for a night. Right, <laughs> so like that, that's possible too. Right, and then the final one, which is kind of where it's all won and lost, is Bayesian probability, which basically Bayes was one of the first mathematicians to realize, hey, beyond like easy answers that pencil out every time. There's a sort of sense of like in complex situations, you kind of never know. And definitely earlier is much harder to tell than later. So he, he basically said, figure out how many variables you have in your equation, right? Is the, you know, are, are our elected leaders telling us the truth? Are our doctors telling us the truth? Are my, you know, Pleiadian contacts that I download in meditations telling me the truth? Who knows, right? But like C and then upgrade them over time as you learn more and dynamically weight them till you get to a, either a place where you have better or perfect information or you're just out of time and have to make a choice. So that's Bayesian probability. And between those three, right, you can generally, I mean, you don't, you know, the Bayesian part is you're never getting to certain, yeah. but you can get to informed enough to act as you have to, given the environment. And, you know, I think maybe the question behind your question was, was, that sense of like, how do you make sense of like right now? Yeah. Because one of the things that's especially mind boggling about right now is that some of the worst people have been occasionally right, mm. but they've been saying True. the right thing for the wrong reason. Yes. Right. So, so, so like if you just take Trump and I never speak of the fellow, but we, we, we might as well. Mm. So you, you get lap one on Trump a year and a half ago or a year, year and you know, 14 months ago yeah. and saying it's the Chinese flu. It's the Kung flu, right? You're like, oh, you, you, you know, you dodgy bastard. Mm. You're shirking responsibility for your mismanagement of this pandemic, right? And you're trying to stir up nativist resentment against somebody else. Shitty reasoning, right? However, right, as ongoing evidence continues to pile up, and it was there all along, yes. right? But it was not the liberal mainstream media's not dominant narrative because he'd said the shitty thing. So now we have to be opposite him, mm. right? And so they, they dug in and started suppressing any serious inquiry into the lab leak hypothesis, which actually is wildly plausible and always was, but not for the reasons he was saying it, yes. right? Yes. Same thing with hydroxychloroquine, right? He said that about hydroxychloroquine. We actually have a consortium of doctors that we know well who went super deep on hydroxychloroquine and doing meta-analyses and studies early in the pandemic. And the key was, is that it actually showed some statistically significant impacts early, like first diagnosis, mm -hmm. like not, not, and then they, then all of the studies that came out in the big journals, like the Lancet and every, everywhere else, where once people were hospitalized and I, you know, 
already hospitalized and or intubated and ventilated. And it didn't work very well at all that far downstream. Mm. Now, once again, you have the wrong guy saying the right thing for the wrong reasons. How do you sort that out? Right. And, and so we're seeing, you know, and you've got Fauci and you've got Bill Gates and you've got all these figures and you can kind of do this all day long. And then you end up with you, you end up with an hysterical media on both sides. Yes. You get absolutely, you know, and I think, you know, the, the right wing has absolutely weaponized all of the tools of postmodern liberal university style education. And they're just beating the hell out of liberals with their very own game. So they'll be like, free speech, help, help. I'm being oppressed. You know, like they, and people are like, wait, what? You know, and, and they don't know how to cut through that in a meaningful way. And on the other side, you've had liberals. I mean, if you think like me too, mm. probably would not have done what it did, how it did. If it wasn't for Trump's famous grab him by the quote yeah. that and he got elected anyway. Right. Harvey Weinstein, you know, interesting news item, like good riddance to us, you know, a shitty Hollywood guy. It would not have fueled me to. Mm. Right. And so you see all these kind of backlashes and the same with George Floyd. Mm. Right. If you look just purely across the board at egregious police violence and particularly blue on black violence, that was one of dozens of cases. Many were even more sympathetic and more cut and dried even. Right. Mm. But in the midst of the pandemic, in the midst of the shutdown, nine minute video saying, I can't breathe. Right. Snapped. I mean, like that became a rallying cry that showed up in France, that showed up in England, that showed up around the world. Yeah. And you're like, oh, man. So how we how we sort out. Um, I mean, Ch Jeffrey Epstein, for God's sake, mm. you're like, wait a second. He's hanging out with the royal family of England and two United States presidents, and he just dies before he can say anything, and there's no camera, and the gods fell asleep that one night. What? In yeah. a max security? Yeah. Right? You're like, that's crazy. I mean, I even know a guy who spent time in that prison for weed dealing. He was, he's a hilarious guy. He's like Milton Friedman meets Vin Diesel. And he's like, he's like, yo, bro. I mean, have you seen how tall those fucking bunk beds are? There's no goddamn way you can hang yourself off one of them things. Right. So you're like, yeah. oh, interesting. Right. And so, so like we have been in the upside down for the last 18 months. I mean, everything I mapped of like meaning 1.0 and organized religion and the, you know, European enlightenment, like those are long-term historic trends and that's all happening for sure. But the last 18 months has just been a washing machine of crazy. And we're all turned upside down. I absolutely agree. And I think if you get really into it, you can get so bogged down by everything that's, that is going on. How do we get out of it? How can you as a person make mm -hmm. those changes to be able to have the flow and effect for it to, to change our world for the better? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think, you know, good old Tim Leary back in the 60s, right? He famously said, uh, turn on, tune in, drop out, <laughs> right? And, and, I, and I think he had it exactly backwards. Because like we got, we got 50 years of the baby boomers trying and did not set us up for much, a whole bunch of success, right? Yeah. But instead of like turn on, it's like turn off. Turn off all your digital distractions. Turn off your laptops. Turn off your social media. You know, instead of, instead of tune in, tune out mm. all the chatter in the media. And instead of drop out, like drop in, like drop into our bodies, 
drop into our lives, into our neighborhoods, into our communities, into nature, <laughs> into relationship. Like, let's go back to like being analog humans a little bit more and actually connect with each other because there are, there's, you know, whatever, depending on how you count, let's just say there's 10% fringes on either side, right? Nut hatches on the left and right. You take your pick of how you want to slice the bell curve, but 10% on either wing are crazy. And 80% are decent, hardworking, live and let live people that want a solid chance to keep on keeping on. Yeah. And you have to, we have to shut our screens because all the algorithmically optimized outrage engines just suck our souls and bend our brains. But face to face with, with our, you know, with our friends and neighbors, you hash through stuff, you work it out and you find common ground. And the common ground could be we care about our neighborhood. It could be we care about where our kids go to school together. It could be we care about our town or our city or our river or our ocean. Great. We do not have to. We do not have to see eye to eye on whether meat is murder and whether leather 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 shoes are okay or not. Like that, yeah. if that's outside our shared sphere of concern, awesome. We can go tackle that another day, mm. right? But find how big do you care, right? And where is the shared overlap that we can take it as far as possible for? It might be like, and I care for my country. Great, you, we do too. We want a healthy, thriving country. Do I care about those other folks on the other side of the world? No, I don't. Oh, I do. Great. <laughs> That's okay. And, 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 and I think we just need to go back to those brass tacks, starting with where we live and starting with our communities, because, you know, any of the hard stuff, and I, I don't know how Australia is doing right now, but we are rapidly entering another totally insane fire season. We had crazy winter weather. We've got historic droughts yeah. across the entire American West. Like things are starting to cascade. Like yeah. we are living in the unraveling. It's not someday maybe, and it's not like a TED talk that scares you and then offers you hope. You know, like Al Gore in 2001, it's not that anymore. Like we are living in the midst of, let's just at a minimum say extreme and persistent turbulence. So like the, the dams that come out of the Colorado River, right? Lake Mead and Lake Powell biggest reservoirs in the American West. They were built to provide hydroelectricity for, you know, during the depression and then the war effort, right? To make aluminum for, you know, for, for bombers and planes and tanks and things that kept getting blown up. And then they became, you know, electricity and water for Arizona and air conditioning and mm. Phoenix and all these crazy places that were way the hell too hot and way too dry to grow anything or live. And that's where the entire sunbelt blew up from the 1950s. And now those reservoirs are down to 30%. They've never been this low. And whoops, wouldn't you know it, it's also crazy dry and hot. So now we all need all of our air conditioning and wait, that thing is only a third full. It can't generate the electricity it used to. So we're now getting wildfires, extreme heat and rolling brownouts and blackouts. So you're like, whoops, like <laughs> we have massively overclocked. So that sense of getting local, like the biggest, the biggest advice I could offer is grieve globally yeah. and thrive locally. Like pay attention to what's happening around the world. There's a lot going on. And it's really critical that particularly people in developed countries who have information, who have mobility, who have choice, who have a vote, you name it, who have influence and access. It's critical that we are informed and we're giving a shit. 
you know, and then thrive locally. Don't get crushed by that. Yeah. Because we can't, none of us can individually solve the world. Yeah. Right. But we can knock on doors. We can plant gardens. We can help people right around where we live. How do you find your joy, Jamie? Live music, big mountains, and oceans. So gravity sports. Um, so surfing, kite surfing, mountain biking, backcountry skiing, um, and live bands that throw down, not ones that are playing the same songs every night, like the ones that are actually into improvisational, like here's the crowd, here's us, mind meld, now let's, ha- let's have this thing happen. So basically, um, you know, electric jazz. But th- those are the things that, and, you know, and family, right? My relationship with a partner I've been with since college, um, our two kids and close friends, you know, and great books, right? I mean, there's nothing like a great book. You talk about in Recapture the Rapture, the solution to an inclusive world is breathing, sexuality, embodiment, substances, and music, which you just mentioned. Yeah. Can you talk us through those different those different things but especially let's start with breathing yeah i mean and just to kind of set up why i said that yeah right which was the idea of hey if we've had this collapse in meaning and we need to explore what does meaning 3.0 look like what does a new version that can work for everyone look like the odds of it being tops down with uh, you know um coming from the vatican or coming from you know uh, um uh you know, a mosque or anywhere, like any tops down, like there's somebody in charge telling everybody what to do. We can pretty much take that off the table, right? A, nobody's up for it anymore. And B, prior efforts haven't ended well. So what is an open source system? That means anybody has access to the toolkit. What is scalable? Meaning that, you know, the bottom 4 billion, the bottom half of the planet who don't have abundant time for money, you know, iWatches, personal growth workshops, right? Whatever it would be, um, that they have access as well. And something that can be helpful and get better as things get worse. So basically, is it anti-fragile? Because if it only requires like me sitting on a meditation cushion with my singing bells and my Enya CD, and I need 90 minutes uninterrupted or I lose my shit later that week. Yeah. You know, that's not, that, that's quite fragile. Yeah. Right. So that's, those are the conditions. And to meet those conditions, one of the simplest ways to think of it is, well, hey, um, if we use things that our, everybody has, we are, they're actually parts of our bodies or easily or readily available to most folks. And we use evolutionary drivers. So specifically, you know, three of them that are the, the ones we selected for the book was breathing, right? Everybody's got to breathe. Mm. So we are strongly encoded to make sure we do. And if you learn to play with that via how fast you breathe, how deeply you breathe, how often you breathe, you can shift the gases in our bloodstream and in our brain, and you can massively shape consciousness just via breathing. Right? We're actually doing a study at Johns Hopkins on PTSD and breathwork. Yeah. Right? And the intention there is like, can you actually help people who have suffered from wartime or domestic or any other form of PTSD and actually help alleviate their nervous systems and help mend their psychology right? via deliberate guided breathwork and therapeutic intervention? So it's, mm-hmm. it can be that powerful. Yeah. 
And, and sexuality is another simple one. It's got, you know, all kinds of our crazy taboos and we're either horrified by it or snickering about it or obsessed with it. You know, like very rarely do we just kind of take a look at it like a, a physician from space to like, oh, how do humans do this thing? Right. But the idea is, is that for millions of years, hominids reproduced without an instruction manual. So you just take that. You're like, how the hell did we figure out, you know, slots and chips and this and that, and we make babies? Like, nobody told us. And we still figured it out. Mm. So you're like, okay, what's going on there? And what's going on there is the A, you know, our erogenous zones have the densest concentration of neurons of anywhere in our body. So you're like, that's that's fascinating. Like, just neat. Right. And B, when you put them together, you get a cascade of reinforcing neurochemistry that is so profoundly, you know, um, over, you know, overriding any other shapes and behaviors that yeah. we do it. And and there's even in fact, Jared Diamond, the fellow who won the Pulitzer for Guns, Germs and Steel, wrote an earlier book called Why Sex is Fun. And he makes the case, he's like, look, we all, you know, when everybody says about the evolution of like homo sapiens how do we get smart right and stop being you know monkeys in trees he's like everybody thinks of wielding tools and language he's like but actually our sexuality is eek is the third leg of that stool because we are radically different from all other animals in the animal kingdom as far as frequency tendency duration mates bodily adaptations than than any other animals but also even our primate cousins yeah so you're like okay so on the one hand We've been puppets on the string of evolution. It jerks us around. You fall in love. You can't think of anything else. You, you, know, you, you, you get all of those bonding chemicals just long enough to conceive and wean a child. And then you look at each other like, who the hell are you? And I'm over this. And you get divorces and broken marriages and relationships. You get seven-year itches. You get you know, men in the 40s running off with their secretaries. You're like, well, what? The, that's the old school version, right? But like, what's that about? Well, what that's yeah. about is a drop in testosterone. And the French study has shown that the simplest way for a man to boost his testosterone is sex with a new and younger partner. And you're like, oh my gosh, you know, that's crazy. When a woman steps out and she's, um, and she's ovulating, if she has an orgasm with a new higher testosterone partner, her ability to conceive can slide three days in either direction. So like a one night stand can actually end up being, oh, I've got a new baby daddy. Whoops. And so like, this is just evolution. All, evolution is amoral and doesn't care about who we stood up in front of and what we promised. Right. And, and, and all it cares about is a robust, very gene pool. Yeah. So that creates boatloads of suffering to say nothing of sexual trauma, sexual violence, all these other things mm. that come from unmanaged, strong drivers and urges. Right. So tons of human heartbreak and suffering when we're just puppets on the string of evolution. But if you realize instead, oh, what's the judo move? Mm. How could we use that very same neurochemistry, that very same hormonal imprinting, that very same neurological tension, discharge, release, integration, stillness, calmness, wholeness, belonging, safety, security, bonding, all the, all the wonderful things. Could we jump the tracks? We say, thanks very much, evolution. You got us this far. Now we're going to take responsibility for how we work with this nervous system and this physiology, including our sexuality, but not sidetracked by it, not obsessed with it, not fetishizing it, just integrating it. 
and, and Nicole Prousey, who was at UCLA and now um, has her own research lab, mm. is, is a fascinating, she's a former uh, Kinsey Institute researcher, has actually been researching um, women's orgasm as prescription pharmaceutical for pain, for anxiety, for depression. For She's like, hey, like, there's no, there shouldn't be shaming for bad coping and this kind of stuff. Like, this is actually as good or better in some instances. And once again, cheap, free, and easily available, you know? So if you're not on health insurance, if you're suffering at home alone, whatever it would be, like, just learn to leverage that neurophysiological response. And it also includes, you know, you, you mentioned that you had interviewed our uh, friend Rick Doblin yeah. on... Yeah psychedelic PTSD research, right? And the same thing that they're doing with MDMA therapy, which is the idea that you take that tablet, it increases prolactin, vasopressin, serotonin, and oxytocin. And then it allows somebody who suffered some you know, traumatic event in the past to feel safe and secure and connected. And then to revisit the memory, kind of take it off the shelf, work with it, right? Render it a little bit more livable and manageable. And then they put it back on the shelf. That's in a nutshell, what the PTSD studies are doing. Well, that exact profile of the high oxytocin, serotonin, prolactin, vasopressin is identical to the post-orgasmic state as their researchers name. So you're like, huh, right? Like fascinating and important work, but this has taken 30 years to get it where it is and hundreds of millions of dollars and it's still tightly controlled and regulated. Meanwhile, lots of people Mm. are suffering right now. You know, we we can go down that path And we could also forge this other path where healthy, integrated sexual fitness, sexual wellness could be a part of helping people defrag their nervous systems, process and integrate grief. And hopefully, if if this was in a relational format, and hopefully connect with each other because the rest of life is kind of shitty sometimes. And sometimes it's kind of shitty a lot of the time, right? As we've just experienced. So the ability to help each other heal, feel good, shift state and and clarify our nervous systems, bodies and brains feels super helpful and important. Oh, magical. Why do you think people are moving away from religion and are more open to spirituality than they've ever been? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really kind of interesting, especially in the US, but I would imagine that Australia probably shares some similar patterns. Um, which is actually, you can make a case, like particularly outside of Europe, at least we're speaking in the kind of the Judeo-Christian traditions yes. now, not so much um, Confucianism or Buddhism or, or, or Hinduism, the kind of mishmash of, of a whole bunch of belief systems that's loosely Hinduism. Um, actually, like America has always hated authority structures, mm-hmm. has always sent, you know, privileged direct experience and has always, I mean, like if you look through the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, there were several great awakenings. One of them with the second great awakening was in like 1803. There was one in like Kentucky in the mountain, hillbilly Appalachia, you know, like, like in the mountains where they had preachers. There were, there was like 10,000 people there. They stayed up all night. They were getting hammered. They were, they were getting, they were fornicating in the forest. You know, the preachers were getting mobbed. They had to build scaffolds. It it looked like a rave. I mean, they were the equivalent of DJs. I mean, I gave a talk like this at Burning Man. I was like, I just described that event, but didn't say when it happened. And it was hundred percent one-to-one Burning Man. It was like August. It was hot. It was this, it was that. And there was like, no, no, this was 250 years ago, (laughs) you know? So you could say that 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 yearning for 
experiential, immersive um, spirituality is actually one of the core currents of, at a minimum, the American spiritual and cultural traditions, and then by extension and expansion around the world. So I think that yearning, and you know, the Leucinian mysteries in ancient Greece, which persisted for 2,000 years, which is just insane, right? That's, you know, yeah. we, we think, oh, we've got a four-year government cycle and then it changes parties, like 2,000 years, different empires, different, different everythings, um, was, you know, arguably one of the seedbeds of Western civilization. Pythagoras, Plato, Socrates, you know, Cicero, you name it, all got baptized in those waters. So our yearning to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that which we, which we know in our bones to be truth mm. is something I think that we're pretty hard wired for. I mean, even macaque monkeys will pause at an especially beautiful sunset and they will stop fighting. They will stop fornicating. They will stop foraging, right? All the strongest drivers, they will pause to take in the sunset. Mm. So you're like, holy smokes, right? So all, right? Like, like yearning for the numinous yeah. is arguably just baked into our skulls. How do you envisage hope? A lot of people obviously have felt quite hopeless during this time of COVID and yeah. lockdowns and the world just changing rapidly. And there is a sense of those who have that hope. And then you go back to like Holocaust survivors and you hear people mm -hmm. like Ellie Wiesel and many mm -hmm. others who yeah. talk about how it was hope that got them through. But then you can also look at at hope as being something that hasn't quite happened. So it's it's like you're you're hoping for something that is, isn't real. What are your views on hope? And as a society of people, how we use it to best get us through these tougher times? Yeah, I mean, I think that question of hope and how do we have hope that's durable yeah. um, is really important. Because I often think of like, you know, like how like hip vampire movies in the last couple of decades, you know, some scared person will like hold up their fingers or they'll throw garlic at him. And then the cool vampire's like, are you kidding? Like that was an old wives tale. That doesn't really work. You know, and then they're like, whoops, we're really screwed now. So we don't want those. Right. We don't want the garlic cloves and the finger crosses. Yeah. Um, we want hope that's actually going to do the trick, right, against the demons in the darkness. And I think one of the best examples of this is uh, Admiral Jim Stockdale was the highest ranking POW in Vietnam. And he, he noticed something while he, I think he was in prison. For, he was in a North Vietnamese POW camp for, I think, nine years. And so he saw a lot <laughs> and he went through a lot. And what he noticed was that the pessimists in the camp, so the people whose hope was broken right out of the gates, didn't survive. And that makes total sense. But the other thing he noticed was the optimists didn't make it either. Because they were like, oh, we'll be home for Christmas or Easter or summer or July 4th, whatever. We're going to be out soon, guys. And then when those dates would come and go and they hadn't got the thing they were hoping for, they'd just fold. Yeah. And that, and he actually ended up coining that the term got coined around his, his insight, which was the Stockdale paradox, which is that to really have durable hope, you need to be ruthlessly realistic about short-term reality while remaining relentlessly optimistic about long-term possibility. Mm. And I think one of the simplest things we can do is expand that because like in the last 50 years, we've all been very well conditioned in the, in the industrial rich developed world 
to be, you know, incredibly acquisitive consumers and rational egoic identities, meaning like it's all about me and I want mine now. And it's all about getting stuff and like my satisfaction. And we've been primed and trained to think of ourselves that way and to act that way. Yeah. But if we think about it, it's a little bit like um, if you've ever, you know, like a short land cruiser versus a long, you know, limousine yeah. or something, right? If you're going down the highway in a land cruiser, it's bumpy as hell, right? Because it's got a short little wheelbase. That's kind of like us. Like that's our time frame. You know, it's 80 years and I want it all to happen now. And it's very bumpy when we hit rocks and potholes. But if you're in a long stretch limo, right, you can be hauling down that road and then each bump gets blended out over that longer wheelbase. And the same is true for us in our families and what we consider as our part or our life. So basically, and there's been fascinating studies that show that like children who know their grandparents, who go back three generations instead of just one, are less likely to be anxious or depressed. They do better on test scores. They, they complete more high school and university. They do all the things and they handle adversity better than kids who are just, you know, only child, just nuclear parents, no extended kin. And of course that makes sense. It's how we've always done the human thing. But when everybody moves away from their parents and you're hopscotching around the world for jobs and you pack your parents off in nursing homes because it's too much of a hassle to have them in the home, you know, and, you know, and aunts and uncles you never meet or you only do once mm -hmm. a year, that kind of a thing. We realize, oh, okay, we have been fragmented into our weakest units, where you know, there's epidemics of loneliness, there's tons of narcissism and you know, outrage of I want mine and I want it now. And I think one of the biggest things for us to get that kind of hope that Jim Stocktail was talking about that paradox mm -hmm. of like, pay attention to what's happening now. Don't put lipstick on that pig, but remain relentlessly hopeful is can I expand back out to seven generations? Can I look three behind me and can I truly honor my parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents that got me here. Yeah. They almost certainly had a rougher go of it than I did, right? With few exceptions. Can I really give it up for them? And can I look three ahead to my children, their children, and their children? So that my part is not no longer about me getting mine now. It's about me carrying this torch, right? Through my family as far as I possibly fucking can. And the Talmud, the, the, the Hebrew book, has a, has a beautiful phrase for that, which is, we're not expected to finish the work, nor are we excused from it. Yeah. And that paradox, right, it's kind of the same paradox. Right? <laughs> like, it's like, oh my gosh, this is overwhelming. And suck it up, fat kid. You got to try anyway. <laughs> How do you think when someone leads a life of or just a lifestyle that is in some way in service. How do you think that changes their way of being? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I think it's actually the missing link in all personal development and self-help. Yeah. We've, we've, we've turned so inward, we've crawled up our own asses. And, and, you know, you can take any, you know, any study and any buzzword, but like the hedonic treadmill, or the hedonic paradox, which is that seeking happiness doesn't make you happy. You know, you find yourself very quickly, interestingly, back to meaning 1.0, right? Which is, you know, whether it's the Greek Stoics who are like, hey, this is really important. You actually need to contribute. Every religion around the world has always had strong service components, right? Even the roots of yoga, like karma yoga, right? Like those ideas are like, actually get off your ass and go do something for someone else. You'll feel better. Helpers high. 
right? I mean, you, you, we can geek at it from the optimal psych, psychology point of view of like, if you're still a self-interested bastard, you would do this anyway, because it'll make you feel better. But then if you just have, you know, a slightly more open heart and care and concern, you'd be like, oh, I'm going to do this because, man, not everybody uh, has as easy a lie of the ball as I had, no matter how hard mine has felt. I still have it. Like basically, if someone is rage tweeting on a thousand dollar smartphone about their oppression and their injustice, it's like mm. you already won the lottery, friend. You, you're in the 0.01% of all humans that have ever lived on the planet Earth. And just getting that perspective back and realizing, hey, you don't have to go 100,000 years in the past, you just need to go 10 miles you know, or a hundred miles or a few thousand miles in any direction. Mm. And you will see people that, that their lives would, you know, make, drop you to your knees and make you weep. So, so we're needed. And if, and if we're in a place where, and, and I mean, think about it. I, I don't, I didn't watch that movie 300 with Gerard Butler until like a couple of years ago on a plane. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'll finally watch it. Right. <laughs> and you realize, you realize, I was like, oh my gosh, this is fascinating. Like everybody is dying for a life of significance. Yeah. We yeah. love those movies. We love those books and stories. We all like to imagine, right, that when the cry goes out, we'll heed the call, mm. right? But actually, like Archilochus, the Greek poet, he said something that the Navy SEALs then adopted, which is we don't rise to the occasion. So if you're thinking you're gonna someday maybe be this awesome superhero, but every day to day you're a selfish yeah. something, something, right? You're probably not. You're probably going to be that selfish bastard. Again, he said, we don't rise to the occasion. We sink to our training. Mm. And so the sinking to our training is like, okay, well then what are we practicing? And if we practice courageous service, if we practice letting go of our pleasure and preferences and even pain and stories, mm. if we practice seeing the world through other people's eyes, then we'll get better at it. And that sure does seem like it's, you know, a helpful thing, a good thing, but also an increasingly necessary thing. How do you think that we have moved so far from oneness, source, may it be, to this duality, to you and me, them over there, I'm here, and that whole idea, that Darwinism of every man for themselves, that scarcity. How mm -hmm. has that become so prevalent yeah, I mean that that's a it's a beautiful question and it's kind of like that is the entire human condition in, in a you know in a sentence. How did we go from feeling we're all part of something mm. to feeling isolated, fragmented and alone? And you can, you know, you can make a case it's tempting and people do say, "Oh, we dropped the plot somewhere back there." It was the industrial revolution, you know, where everything, where everything looked like the Shire and it was hobbits and farms and BBC, you know, <laughs> um, television programs. That was super groovy. We need to go back to that, you know, and then there are other people like, oh, no, no, no. That was, the, that was patriarchy. That was extracting the soil. That was domestication of animals. We need to go back to hunters and gatherers. That's where it was really going on, hmm. right? And you can do that infinite regress. And it is definitely tempting and you can cherry pick your facts and your scenarios and it can seem really persuasive. But I think probably more true is that there have been pockets of awesome forever, mm -hmm. um, but there's also been a shit pile of suffering. 
You know, and, and when people, you know, obsessed on game with Game of Thrones, I think, you know, half of that obsession was just going, Jesus Christ, life was nasty, brutish and short. Like mm-hmm. life was cheap back then. And that was, that was a sexy version. So the realities are, I think, is that this is our human condition. Yeah. What does it mean to be born a naked ape that becomes aware of itself, including the fact that one day it will die? And what on earth do we do in the meantime? Mm. And, and so that notion of like, we can't live in source. Like if you want to sort of, you know, even technically be like non-dual consciousness, right? Yeah. You can sit in contemplation. You can glimpse those experiences. If you did that indefinitely, you're either a saint that needs people to look after you, yeah, right? Yeah. Or you're institutionalized because you can't keep your shit together. Yeah. So let's say like nice to visit, right? It's a little bit like above 26,000 <laughs> feet in the Himalayas, right? Like above 26,000 feet, they call it the death zone, Yes. right? Things don't live up there and you're on borrowed time the longer you stay. So you could make a case that non-dual source consciousness is fundamentally above the zone where we get to live our lives. We can visit, right? But our lives are down in the valleys. And how do we, how do we engage that without fixating on those summits or getting crushed by the ditch digging down below? And that's mm-hmm. my, my hope with this book is to say, hey, folks, not any promised outcomes. Just how do we do this human thing a little better? And it's if we have reliable access to the inspiration so I can remember what I forgot and I can stand tall, Mm -hmm. even if it's just for a moment, be like, oh yeah, this is what it feels like, right? Amazing, right? And I might remember something, right? I might I might have forgotten because my my consciousness got beaten down, Mm -hmm. but now at full charge, I can access those files. I can remember critical, beautiful, important stuff that's mine and mine to do. And oh, wouldn't you know it, I kind of get a printout of Here's the places you're a little banged up and broken, son. Like, here's your homework. And I can come down and do some healing. Yeah. And that's how do, I, how do I defrag my nervous system? How do I open up my fascia and my musculature? How do I ensure healthy food and eating? How do I discharge trauma, et cetera? And then connection. And how do I share those two things, right? The mountaintop and the, and the deep weeping and mending. How do I share those two things with my brothers and sisters? Yeah. With the people I love, because so many times, right, we'll go, like, I, I mean, I don't know what your experience has been, but I've, I've experienced this so many times where, I, you know, get lobbed up to the mountaintop. Holy shit. Amazing. Thank you. But then I see more than I bargained for, including all the places I'm banged up, broken, messed up, contradictory, weak, lame, you name it. Yeah. And you go back down to the healing and you're like, oh man, this is just too much. <laughs> I cannot actually handle that much of expansion. And then, and I'm done. Like I'm done for it. Like stick yeah. a fork in me. I am dead. And yet what is what brings us up on our feet again mm. are our brothers and sisters is the pulse of the jam, the groove, the beat. Like, hey, come on. This is, a, this is our groove and reconciliation committee. And we're all invited and so that power, you know, and, and I mean, great, great musicians do this for us. Yes. And if you think about the ones that are the songs that everybody flicks their lighters for, right? They're almost always redemption songs. Mm-hmm. Whether that's Bob Marley or Dolly Parton or Lady Gaga or Beyonce, <laughs> right? It's the raise the motherfucking roof. And it's not just let me just blast you with like saccharin and cotton candy. It's let me tell you how hard this has been. Let me show you. Yes right? How much I have suffered. Let me testify to how broken I was or am. And then they hit the gas. Then they belt out the refrain, 
And then that celebration really means something because it's what we've all lived. That's so true. Jamie, what has been your most mystical experience? <laughs> um, I, I have found myself to be um, a complete, like a, like, like a sort of uh, mystical idiot savant, like not through any um, skill or, um, or intentions of my own. I have had a nonstop string of absolutely ridiculous encounters with the sublime. So let's just suffice it to say that this book is a reverse engineered attempt to smuggle in as much of that as possible um, without disclosing the absolutely um, whack nut origins of where it all came from. This, this one is semi-relevant because, um, because it happened sober and it happened before the event happened. So we were hiking into some hot springs in Big Sur, California um, with, my, with my wife. And, uh, and it was actually, we were in a relatively tight spot. Like it was, what, we were maybe less than 10 years married and it was a real question. In fact, like that trip was kind of like whether we stayed together or not. Yeah. So it was kind of one of those. And we hiked in under a full moon under these giant old growth redwoods and we camped halfway to these hot springs. And, and I had a dream in the middle of the night and it was, and it was this sense of um, like a, a medieval pageant, like along the skyline and coming down the path and there were gestures and all these things and they were like bustling past us. And I'm like, what's going on? What's going on? And this court jester stops and, he, and, he, and, and, and I was like, what's going on? And he's like, don't you know? It's the wedding. And I was like, whose wedding? And he goes, yours. You know, and that was it. And then I'm like waking up, you know, looking into the stars. I'm like, that's bizarre. What's that about? And then we go to these hot springs and the following night have a five or six hour completely non-ordinary mystical life and death reborn in the Garden of Eden experience, which ended up being for all intents and purposes, our sort of alchemical wedding that then became the foundation of our life together and also how we stay together even through like you know the early thankless years of two kids under two and you know all the times where you're like what's this about I'm not so sure I signed up for this and would go back to that experience and be like oh no we signed up for this so magical what is the best advice that you've ever been given would I rather be right or effective Nice. I, I grew up dumbly thinking they were identical. And only after a pile of error messages that I realized that my emphasis on being right was um, massively, massively hampering my ability to be effective. I'm still trying to figure that one out. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? Probably, probably Aldous Huxley's dying words of like, above all, above all, be kind. What is your favorite prayer? It might be that Talmud quote, that we're not expected to finish the work, nor are we excused from it. I, I find myself coming back to that one for, a, it's both kind of like comforting and a kick in the ass at the same time. Yeah. And it never gets old for me. What's your greatest hope for society today? Oh, I would say um, vibrant, self-sufficient, 
meshwork of bioregional communities across this planet living the way that's in us to be. What is a life of greatness to you? Seeking novelty, making art, and helping out. Jamie Wheel, you are an absolute wealth of knowledge. Thank you for your wonderful books and all of the work that you've done for this world. Yeah, great to chat. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg, Audio producers Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.